Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. I think my first role model is Louis Pasteur, the first science entrepreneurs. My role models keep changing as the company grows and as I grow as a founder, it's founders that are two or three years ahead. People say often you have foundational science, business, they're separate. If you go to business, it's because you're a bad scientist, so you just want to earn a lot of money. I was more motivated by really trying to have an impact on the world and solve a real problem. Xavier Duporté is the founder of Eligo Bioscience, a biotech startup using CRISPR to create a new class of biotherapeutic agents to selectively intervene on the microbiome. Eligo raised over $20 million from French and US investors, including Cosla Ventures and Seventure Partners. Xavier is also a synthetic biology PhD with an unusual path. He was born in France, grew a passion for insects that led him to an internship in a genetics lab at age 12, which ignited his passion for science. Fast forward a few years, after a first startup attempt, he earned his PhD across multiple labs, including a stay at MIT, which had a profound effect on his mindset and understanding of ecosystems. He came back to France and became a catalyst in the emerging deep tech community by founding in 2011 a non-profit called Hello Tomorrow to bring together scientists, investors, and corporates. Today, the event is, as far as I know, the largest deep tech conference in the world and highlights every year 500 of the top early-stage startups in the field. In 2018, he co-founded Deep Tech Founders, a six-month training program that already helped hundreds of global scientists and engineers to accelerate their startup projects. In this episode, Xavier shares ideas about science entrepreneurship and the importance of a product-driven mindset. We also discuss how founders need to be complementary and combine technology with storytelling on networks to succeed. Finally, he shares his hopes about Deep Tech's ability to solve critical problems that digital alone can't solve and the importance of accessible role models to support this mission. Xavier, great to have you today. Hi, Ben. Great to be here. We've known each other for quite a few years, even before you started your company, launching the biggest tech event in Europe for deep tech called Hello Tomorrow. That must have been like six, seven years ago, right? Yeah. It's been very impressive to see your trajectory and not only with the event and your other initiatives for the deep tech ecosystem, but also as an entrepreneur. And in this episode, I actually like to explore with you your background, because uh, you're a scientist, you became an entrepreneur and became a community leader and a uh, catalyst. So maybe to get started, I'd love to hear about uh, your background, your studies and the various uh, companies and organizations you formed. I always wanted to become a scientist. And I think what's most important is who you meet. I had the chance to meet when I was 12 during my first internship in a lab on uh, genetically engineered silkworms, a scientist who transmitted his passion for science and since then, since I was 12, I always wanted to become a genetic engineer. So I did my studies in France in a good bioengineering school, and then had a chance to do a master at the CRI, the Center of Interdisciplinary Research, and then a PhD between INRIA in France, which is the French Institute for Computer Science, and MIT in the Weiss Lab on Synthetic Biology. And at the same time, as I was doing my PhD, I almost started my first company called Omix based on an antifungal compound I've helped discover when I did an internship in New Zealand a few years back. And then started also Hellot's Morrow in Europe to help promote science entrepreneurship in Europe and in the world. 
And then a few years later, when I was 25, finishing my PhD, I decided to start my current biotech company, Elico Bioscience, in which I'm the CEO now for six years. And more recently, after I left Hello Tomorrow as president, because it has grown quite well, and I think I had done my job evangelizing deep tech entrepreneurship, I founded with another team, Deep Tech Founders, which was much more hands-on helping French scientists to become entrepreneurs and young entrepreneurs, not young by age, but young by experience. Because science entrepreneurship, deep tech entrepreneurship is really hard. And I think we should really create this ecosystem and family of entrepreneurs, founders that help each other like it's been existing in the web for a while, but because of the fragmentation of science and clusters in Europe, at least, compared to the US, I would say, we really need successful founders or even non-successful founders, but people who've done the work to help each other as much as possible if we want Europe to become a blooming deep tech ecosystem. How did you end up interning in a genetics lab at age 12? Because when I was a kid, my parents let me play in the garden and I fell in love with ants. And so I became passionate with ants. I actually now in the company, I have a huge ant nest with uh, leafcutter ants from Trinidad that are walking free. And so passionate by insects when I was a kid. And so wanted to do my first internship in your lab with insects. And we had in Lyon, where I'm from in the middle of France, we had at the time the top notch genetic engineering lab on insect, which was on silkworm. And the goal was to have silkworms produce completely synthetic silk, spider silk, actually. At age 12, you did an internship. How, how did that happen? Were you in a particular school? No, I was a bit young in the curriculum. Okay. Another thing that I think is very rare is that in the scientific community, there's relatively few people who make the jump to entrepreneurship. At what point did you think you wanted to become an entrepreneur? So I don't want to make you know, the dichotomy between scientists and entrepreneur. I mean, I think you can be a, an entrepreneurial scientist. And I think this is all about being entrepreneurial. So willing to start things, start projects. And so I wouldn't make the difference between a scientist and entrepreneur. I think you can have scientists that are great entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that are great scientists. So I actually always wanted to be a scientist in my engineering school in France. I said, oh, I want to be a professor at MIT. Uh, and so I actually had the luck and what changed my mind was to go at MIT. When I arrived at MIT during my PhD, I was in an ecosystem where a lot of professors were founders of companies where, uh, and actually this is where someone for the first time told me, hey, you know what you've discovered in New Zealand, this small molecule with your professor back there, you know, you should start a company about it. This is where actually I understood that you can still do science and great science in a company. And actually in companies, the science you do has to be science that works, not science that you publish, but science that can be translated into products that can, you know, work not only in the very particular conditions of the lab, but in real life. And this is sometimes much harder than making the discovery. It's to make sure that the discovery can become a product. There is fantastic science in academic labs, but it's science that works in a very particular setting and it's completely different, often much harder to translate that. Being surrounded by all this ecosystem where actually people were not so much separating science from entrepreneurship, but there it was a continuum. It's really where I got the feeling and understood that science discoveries, inventions are great, but they're never going to be able to solve any problems if they're not transformed into a product. And this is where I fell in love, actually, with, you know, I was discovering a lot of stuff in the lab and I was like, it's, I'm not doing all this work so that it stays in the lab. I need to do something with it. This is when, when I, I had the chance to, you know, to spend maybe like a third of my PhD in France 
at INRIA, but science entrepreneurs in France were really not talked about. It was, you know, in 2010, the web was still booming and it was only about tech, not about science entrepreneurship. And so I found it, you know, super sad that this great science, we do great science in France, was not more celebrated. The science and the transformation of the science was not celebrated enough. At MIT, there was this MIT 100K competition, which was also selecting the best, often science projects, at least with a big uh, technological component in them. And so uh, in France, there was nothing like this that were uh, really existing. You have the ministry that is organizing its very formal competition, but it was not very known and not very international. Everything was in France, in French. And so this is why I also decided to start Hello Tomorrow in France, because a lot of things were existing, but I just wanted to bring something a bit new and complementary to what was existing to celebrate science entrepreneurship. And not only in France, but my motivation of doing it in English and opening it to all Europe at the time for the first edition was that if we have to do science entrepreneurship in France and if we have to, you know, make our science entrepreneur become global entrepreneurs, they have to, we have to do it in English and open ourselves to the world. And so this was also a main motivation to do it in English. And so then, you know, Hell Tomorrow boomed and there were a lot of people helping. And I think this will to celebrate and promote science entrepreneurs as much or even more than tech entrepreneurs. I think a lot of people were sharing it at the time. It took a while. Huh? I know in 2014, the word deep tech was, I think, only used in Australia by this accelerator, I think, which was the first one to, to use the word deep tech. And we imported it in France and it took a, a while. The first years, it was hard to get a lot of support because it was still tech, tech, tech. And the tech was lobbying. You know, when you have 99 people saying tech is the future and one person that say, hey, science tech is the future, then it's hard to get heard. But, you know, at the, at the end, it, it worked. And so now you can see the government and BPI in France, the French public bank, they just launched massive efforts to help and to promote deep tech entrepreneurship. So I think, you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. That's a lot to unpack. I think I'd like to react a bit to what you said about MIT, because uh, in an earlier episode of this podcast, I talked with uh, Matt Clifford, the co-founder of Entrepreneur First. And he also uh, spent a year at MIT, and that also had a huge influence on his mindset regarding the ability to create companies, uh, not separate science from entrepreneurship. One thing that's generally making scientists hesitant to start companies is that they feel they have a lot to lose, not just in terms of their own money and time, but also uh, that it might hurt their career. Whereas it seems that in Boston, certainly in Silicon Valley, that's not the case. So in your case, when you started your company, didn't you think it could hurt your career? Or what kind of mental safety net did you have? (laughs) Or you ask yourself what I have to win. (laughs) And to me, it was, what do I have to win? I don't regret for once not having stayed in academia. I think it could have been a really nice place to be, but I think I was more motivated by really trying to have an impact on the world, not at the discovery stage and the concept stage only, but really trying to get this concept that we've discovered. I mean, the the invention we've made with my co-founder, the lab at Rockefeller University and the lab at MIT, and really, really prove to ourselves and to the world that it could have an impact and solve a real problem. My co-founder is the CSO of our company, but he still runs his own academic lab and he wants to have an academic career. It doesn't prevent him from being the CSO of the company right now, spending a decent amount of time in the company, helping us. And, and he actually really enjoys the complementarity of both, but he, he still uh, wants to have this academic path. For me, I was like, what do I have to lose? But nothing much. I really want to succeed. And if I win, I mean, if the product, if the platform, if the technology, if we can make it work, we will win so much. And I think... As a personal journey, 
when you see how I like challenges and it was more challenging to me to really make this, to try to become an entrepreneur than stay in academia. Maybe if I knew at that time how hard it is, I would have stayed in academia, but I guess <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's good to be naive and, and, and to try a bit of crazy stuff because otherwise you don't do it. So I'm asking the question because in some ecosystems for scientists, there's many more bridges between either startups, academia, corporations, whereas in some other ecosystems, it's more difficult to bridge back because, I mean, starting companies is not easy and more generally, they don't work out so well. So being in an ecosystem where you have alternatives if your company doesn't work out is a really good thing. And what do you think is the situation today in France or Europe compared to other ecosystems you know? Actually, this is exactly why I started Deep Tech Founders. So creating a company is really hard. And indeed, a science company is probably a bit harder because you control almost nothing. You have a proof of concept with no constraints in the perfect condition in your lab, and you have to transform it into something that is going to work in, in human in the world where you control nothing at all. Today, we say, oh, yes, let's create a lot of startups. You're a scientist, you know, think about a startup. You know, why isn't it like in the web? We need to start more and more companies. But I think if we have this mentality of just starting companies too soon, too fast, this is where actually it's going to fail most of the time. I think by being in academia and being in a lab, it's fantastic because you can really try a lot of things if you ask yourself the right questions to de-risk as much possible your project before starting the company. And so a lot of scientists just right now are pushed to start companies super fast. But the beauty in being in the lab is that you already have all the tools, you have the expertise around you. And so we are pushing with Deep Tech Founders to really ask yourself before you start the company, ask yourself the right questions about, you know, is your technology interesting? Uh, is, can, can really become a product or no? Is it just a pure technology? It's super important that scientists don't jump too fast to start a company. I think it's really important that they take the time to ask themselves a good question and, and stay in their lab as long as possible. Once you create your company, the clock is ticking and you have so much constraints and you know deadlines. Stay in the lab as long as possible to de-risk as much your technology before you go out. In France, the government is really helping actually scientists start companies because I think now it's for one year or two years. If it doesn't work, they can come back and continue their academic career. So I think then, of course, if you stop for two years, if you have patents but no publications, still today in most academic institutions, it's not seen as uh, gratifying as having a beautiful publication in nature. Um, so this has to change, but this is changing. Indeed, the ecosystem really has a big influence, but the most important is actually to create success stories coming out of academia so that you can inspire others. And so what governments, I think, should be really careful of is not to promote too much science entrepreneurship in, you know, yes, you have an idea, let's start it. Because this is going to create a lot of failures. I'm not saying, you know, failures is bad. Indeed, most projects were going to fail, but the difference is between 90% of the project or 99% of the project are going to fail. If you can prevent a massive failure just one or two years after you've started because you've not thought enough about the project, you've not thought about product, and this is a massive issue with scientists, and I'm still having this problem. We're thinking about technology and not product. And so if you start a company just focusing on the technology, you have 99% of chance that your company is going to fail. And if you get money, start a company, just think about the technology, spend two years making the technology even better without really thinking how it's going to solve the problem, what product is it really going to be, 
then you increase the chance of failure dramatically. And so we created Deep Tech Founder, especially for this, to really help the scientists before they create, before they jump, to actually understand if first, even though they could have the money, if first they would be, it's the right technology, the technology can become a, a real product, people are interested in it. And if they are the right person, if, you know, who they can be in the entrepreneurship journey. And I think this is also something really important for scientists to understand. In some ecosystems, you know, it's clear for majority of people that no, a scientist cannot be a CEO. It has to be a CSO uh, or it has to be in a technical role. And, you know, in some cases, yes, they're not made to be a CEO, but like many other people, but it's not because they're a scientist. But also sometimes the scientists can become a CEO and should be empowered to become the CEO. And so this is also something on which we're working really hard because you can have an idea, the will to start a company. But if you don't know what it is, if you don't know people who have done it, and this is why building ecosystems is so important where people share experience, then you can make the wrong choice and really, you know, make the company fail uh, for, an, again, another different reason. One topic you mentioned is around this idea that scientists need to validate uh, the demand for a product. And so in the U.S., there's uh, this program initiated by Steve Blank called iCore that seems to be doing a lot of that. And uh, some other countries have tried to either reinvent or adapt that. Maybe to clarify for those who are not familiar, your Deep Tech Founders program is kind of a similarly thought coaching program for founders or potential founders to think through their project. Is that right? We've tried to take the best out of it and not copy paste it at all, but really adapt it to the French ecosystem and the French culture. And so really, indeed, we're coaching, we're coaching teams with the head of labs, uh, entrepreneurial scientists uh, who have a project, who have made an invention and we're thinking about spin-offing the company. And we're really accompanying them for five months through this thought process. But also, I think beyond that, really, we're structuring the ecosystem locally by getting many founders of science startups in France that are not known because, you know, we're, they're not celebrated as much as in, in the US often. And we're making these connections that are so important for an ecosystem to work, you know, intergenerational connections, connection across the territory and connections uh, between disciplines. And this is something that is really hard to happen in France. You know, in the US, you have a campus, a university with all disciplines on the campus. Uh, in France, you have research centers that are often per discipline or universities, engineering schools that are per discipline. And so they're separated geographically and it's really hard to make these connections. And so uh, this is also what we're doing. We're opening up the, this ecosystem of science entrepreneurship and connecting everyone together in France to really help the new founders to start their company with the best tools in their hands and best network possible. It's true that the, in science, uh, very often the disciplines are quite siloed. And interestingly, generally, the most interesting innovations happen at the crossing of disciplines. And I've seen some publication actually researching what were the most impactful uh, discoveries on the innovation based on the number of citations of papers. And generally, those at the, at the crossing of multiple disciplines tend to fare a lot better. So yeah, it's a bit of a challenge there for sure. One more thing I wanted to ask you about is that uh, Eligo Bioscience, your current company, is your second company. And uh, you started the first company a few years back. And I'd like to know first, what was it doing? And second, what did you learn through that first experience? So the first, I mean, was Omics. It was, let's say, an embryo of a company. I would say luckily, because otherwise I would not have finished my PhD. So I think I learned quite a lot of stuff. So it was based on this New Zealand discovery with my PI there on the antifungal compound. So a molecule produced by a fungus that would kill other fungus. 
And so I was there, I think, two mistakes that I made that I, from which I learned, I hope. The first one was that I was at this time purely focused on technology. I was like, yes, I have the best molecule in the world. It's going to solve everything. But did not really think about, you know, the scale up, what, how to really make it a product that would be commercially viable because it was expensive to produce and that could go through all the regulation tied to something completely new. And I remember this is when we won a couple of startup competitions, but every time it was like, yeah, you're, you know, you're very scientific. You have to become an entrepreneur. And so this is why now I'm really insisting on it's not a technology that you need, it's a product. And the second thing was that I started this company with a good friend of mine, but we were exactly the same. We were as ambitious. We had the same background. And, you know, at the end, it didn't work out very well because we wanted exactly the same thing. We were not complimentary. We just we were like, just, hey, yes, this is a good idea. We're good friends. But because we're exactly the same, at the end, it didn't work out between us. But the good thing is that actually the University of Auckland in New Zealand did not give us a, a license for the patents because instead there was a a large company that saw us uh, in multiple uh, competitions pitching and the, the big company just called the, the university and said, hey, instead of, instead of licensing it to these two young, naive scientists who are, you know, like 22, give us the license for a big check. And this is what happened. It also uh, helped me, uh, you know, with this uh, gigantic smash in the face. I was, I was really sad at the time, but it's, it showed me the world of business, <laughs> the world of IP and the world of, you know, creating a company. So it was great because then I could finish my PhD. I could develop multiple technologies there and, and, and finally start Eligo, which has much more potential. It sounds that you were very good at uh, marketing the technology, though. So uh, maybe the university could have cut you a check. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that at the time. I was still not a good businessman. Those learnings are, are really interesting because that probably uh, paved the way for your second company. Your second company you've been uh, working on for now, like you said, five, six years, is uh, quite unique in the European landscape because uh, not only it's uh, doing pretty cutting-edge science, but also uh, because you managed to have quite international in investment profile and raise money from Kozla Ventures, I think about $20 million, right? Yeah, so not only Kozla, but for the Series A, the, the French investors was, uh, did also join the, the round. How did you manage to attract such high-profile international investor and what made you, you think special in their eyes? And what kind of work did you do to pave that investment? There's a lot of luck, I think. But indeed, we we're discussing before luck. You have to, to brew luck, I guess. So how did it happen? The, the company Eligo is a spin-off from, from Rockefeller University and MIT. Our, our co-founders are professors from there. So I think this is also helping the fact that, you know, we're not a purely French company to the eyes of uh, American investors. Though, I mean, there are some fantastic pure French players that have attracted also uh, fantastic American investors. But this is, may, this maybe helps. Um, I think the science we're doing is really a, a cutting edge. You know, we're, we're using CRISPR to, to modify the, the microbiome and there are a lot of potential. So I think having both great science, but also communicating the science, I think this is important. This is something that I, I think I learned from also in my few years in the US where people can communicate really well about the science. I think they are real storytellers. And I think in Europe, we are a bit afraid of storytelling because for us, storytelling equals bullshit. Whereas it's not the same at all. You can be a good storyteller saying, you know, bullshit, but you can be a good storyteller really just celebrating what you're doing and giving it so much power that 
you get people to believe in what you're doing. And so if it's backed then by good science, it's not bullshit. And I think this helped. And I think this is something I learned because I saw the power of this when I was in the US. So I think I did convey a really good story about the company, about the science. And I think also what helped is everything I did on the side and the hustling about, you know, the network and, you know, how to more helped me a lot because I was in touch with a lot of VCs, a lot of startups. And the introduction to Kosla was made through a, a startup I met. They told me, yes, you know, of, of course, I'd be happy to make an intro. And at first they were quite busy, but then I met with Samir at the bottom of, the, of an elevator in New York. At first, he wasn't very convinced by my idea. He said, but, you know, yeah, you can come to our office. And three weeks later or a month later, I went there and things then went, went well. But I think there's a lot of serendipity and a lot of, you know, connecting with the right person is important. I think having a network is really important and having recommendations from your network and from people who've done stuff, not only people who talk a lot, but people who are doing stuff is important. What I hear from you is actually that you're a very rare combination of a scientist, on the cutting-edge scientist at that, uh, but also a good storyteller uh, and probably working with all the startups at Hello Tomorrow, seeing how some were doing well on stage. And also, as you mentioned, your stay at MIT surely helped on that scale, but also that you're, you're actually thinking about building networks. So science, communication, and networks seems to be the very strong combination that's rare to find in science startups. I can see from our own portfolio across SOSV, either in biotech or hardware, the storytelling part is, is generally lacking. They focus way too much on the technology. And we try to encourage them to have better angle, talking about the user stories, talking about the impact on the world, but not in kind of fuzzy term, but in between the technology and save the world, somewhere in between, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you have to be optimistic, but optimistic, but realistic at the same time. And I think this is also something that uh, you know, investors are also looking for. And you need to have really strong science behind it. I think this is the most important at the end, but I mean, if you sell it well in, uh, then when you tell people selling science, I mean, not selling science, but selling your story and how you can transform this science into a beautiful product. This is, this is really impactful. I don't think it's rare. I think it exists. I'm far from being successful. What we've made right now is we've raised money and the journey ahead is still extremely long. What we're doing is extremely hard. So. Uh, you have to be extremely humble. And often, I think science entrepreneurs who have really good science are often quite humble because they know it's really hard. And so this is why often you don't hear so much about them because they don't like publicity also because this is not something they're looking for. They don't really care about, you know, shining in public. I think for me, the story is a bit different because before, I mean, starting Eligo or when people ask me to go on TV to talk about science and entrepreneurship, I go there because, and I do it with pleasure because for me, it's a bit of mission to, I think about myself when I was a kid and I would have loved to have a role model that was telling me, hey, science is awesome because you can change the world with it potentially, or you can solve real problems. And just be entrepreneurial. You can be a scientist, but be entrepreneurial. Really try to make things move. And if I would have seen this on TV or, you know, now on the web as a kid of today, I think I would have probably made this connection much earlier than during my PhD. Because even before, I used to love organizing stuff. I was, you know, I used to organize electronic parties in castles. I was to do a lot of other stuff to, to get people together, but not with the science. And it's as soon as I saw these people, these role models. And so for me, you know, communicating about this is so important because every time I do it in France, for instance, 
you know, I see on Twitter or Facebook some young people saying, hey, science looks cool. Uh, it, it, it's really cool. And we need more of this. And so I'm trying to tell also other more successful science founders around, say, hey, go speak. You know, it's your job also to promote this if you want the next generation to really be interested in that instead of just thinking about, you know, the web, which is good, but there's also, we have big problems today that cannot be solved just by digital and where we need to have hardcore science, at least a part of the problem can be solved with science and, and science becoming products. Now, what you're saying about role models is, is absolutely true. I'm happy to actually report that you're the most famous scientist entrepreneur in France, according to a survey that was done across PhDs and postdocs. However, <laughs> it's, it's, mod it's a little bit uh, moderated by the, the fact that most, most of them were actually not aware of, of any, like almost any scientist entrepreneur. So yeah. you had the <laughs> highest recognition with about 3%. So yes. there's a lot of work to do in terms of promoting so the right role models. And I think the government should also take part of it. So they're now, you know, it's, it's, it's moving forward, but the media should also play a role in it. I think, you know, now in the US, you know, you have Elon Musk, uh, which is, so he's who he is. He, but you know, he's, is at least when you think about startup, you think about, you don't, you don't have only the web startups in mind. When you think about US entrepreneurs, you also have, I mean, you have them, which is great. Uh, but you also think about Elon Musk, which is doing, you know, really engineering hardcore stuff. Uh, and it's true that in France, for instance, and I would say, I think in the rest of Europe, we're still much talking about uh, only, you know, the, the web startups, uh, digital startups, though there are some fantastic entrepreneurs, uh, science entrepreneurs that have, that have built fantastic businesses that have sold business for, you know, billions and nobody knows about them. And I think the media should the media and the entrepreneurs themselves and, you know, the government at one point should really put in place initiatives to, to promote that, to promote these role models as much as possible. Absolutely. We're trying to help as well on that. Yeah. To go back to your company, one thing that's generally difficult for science entrepreneurs, and I think for entrepreneurs in general to figure out is what kind of milestones should you pursue to grow your company in particular to be able to unlock the next round of resources on funding. In the digital space or in some well-known categories like SaaS and others, there's some very well-known metrics and it's easy to compare yourself to that and you understand what's the path. But in science, it's much more tricky. So in your case, how did you define your milestones as like the, the key ones for the various rounds of funding and development you did? Yeah, I will only talk of about what I know. Huh? And again, I'm, but I'm still, I'm, very young in the biotech field. But if you think about entrepreneurship in biotech, it has been existing before digital. You know, it was back in the 70s. So the model is quite known and, and structured. But for us, really, the, you know, the milestones is, is actually about this very particular thing of being able to demonstrate that what you have shown in the lab can work in an animal, for instance, so that you can prove that what you tested with much control on the parameters can work and be translated into an animal. Uh, and this is really a big milestone because often at this, you know, from a petri dish to an animal, you already have 90% of things that fail. Uh, and so if you cannot demonstrate this, then you, you know, you have a hard time moving forward. Then it's from an animal to a human. <laughs> and here again, you have 90% chance uh, that it fails. <laughs> 
because animals are totally different from humans. And so you try to structure your fundraising to, to actually de-risk as much as possible your technology, at least, you know, in our case. And uh, this is, you know, our Series A is now, the, the goal is for our Series A is actually to de-risk the platform technology that we're building in mice and larger animals now. And the goal is that once we have this data, and we already have some, which is fantastic, then we can move further. We can convince investors that... Yes, now it's working in animal. Maybe it has potential to work in human. So we need to fund uh, this transition from animal to human and the clinical trials that go that go with it. Yes. Did you also see some transformation within the company, like from the initial founding team, and uh, like how you structured yourself differently, how you hired different for different roles, and maybe we can start actually with your founding team. Like how did you create the company, and who were yeah. the initial founders? What kind of roles yes. did they have? The company is a very fun story because I was at MIT, but one of my friends, David Picard, who is now a CSO, the CSO and, and the co-founder of the company, was at Rockefeller University. And since a while, uh, I had met him when he was doing his PhD and my master. And we, uh, we said, oh, you know, we, one day we're going to build something together. And then time passes, he's doing his postdoc at Rockefeller. I'm doing my PhD at MIT. And we bounce ideas. He tests the ideas in the lab and it's working. We publish a paper in Nature Biotech. And at the same time, actually, I'm going to Tim Liu, who is a professor at MIT, but who has started a couple of successful companies. And I go to him and say, hey, Tim, look, we have this data. Do you think we, I could start a company with that? And he tell me, hey, you know what? We're actually working exactly on the same thing in my lab and we have almost the same data. So he said, oh, that's cool. So actually, let's publish together. So we published two papers back to back in the same journal the same month. And he told me, yes, I think it's quite promising. So we could start a company. So I said, hey, well, come on board. Uh, and then David from Rockefeller and his boss and his uh, uh, PI, uh, principal, the, the boss of his lab, also joined the company. So we, and then myself and David were, you know, operational. And the two professors have been and are still now advisors to the company. So we're four co-founders, two professors and one PhD, one postdoc. So it sounds again that it's a very science-focused team. Yes. From a distance, it sounded like you might have repeated the mistake you made in the first company, but maybe there was a lot of differences in terms of profiles yes. of, of competencies. Yes. Uh, seeing a lot of startups, I, I think I learned a lot from that. And so, you know, at the beginning, the first years, the technology was not mature enough. It was probably a bit too early to spin out. But this I didn't know at the time, that you have to stay in the lab longer. But the first years were really about still validating this technology and the potential of the technology. And I guess I became the business profile because, you know, and I'm still involved in the science, but I was more the entrepreneur in the company. And I hope that I've been a good CEO and that I can still be in the coming years. But it was very science team, but myself, I felt that I had the potential to bring the, the business point of view and the product point of view. But this is something also that grew because recently, you know, after, after a while, after we raised our Series A, where we, have, you know, we demonstrate quite a lot, the team has grown. Still a lot of scientists uh, in it. Now we're 35 people, everybody in Paris, very international. Half of the team is foreign and we have more than 14 nationalities. And I think this is so important, uh, especially in Europe, to have a multicultural team. And I have brought in recently, uh, about a year ago now, a senior profile who's been 15 years in the industry and that's now helping me to translate because now we're at the point where the technology is mature enough so that we can really start to think about a product. I mean, not think about a product, but uh, make it a reality. We thought about a product during the first years, we, we advanced and you know overcome challenges, technical challenges. And so now we finally, since about a year and a half, two years, 
we know that it can become a product. And so this is when I brought this person who is senior in the industry to really help us with her experience, really shape the company, not only the, the product, but the company as a more mature company ready to, to push a product forward. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Uh, actually, thinking of which, um, in the digital world, very often we talk about pivots. And from what you describe, in your case, it sounds like you delivered kind of a straight uh, line from the initial idea to what you have now. Did you experience also some adjustments to your strategy or to your product development based on of what course. you observe in of the market? Course. <laughs> of course. I think uh, if you find one founder that say, uh, this was my plan A and I stuck to my plan A and it worked 100%, then he's a very lucky founder or extremely smart founder. I guess I'm not as lucky and not as smart. Of course, we had to, you know, when we started the company, we, we, we first thought about the pure antimicrobial, antibiotic resistance market, only focus on that. And, and quickly we realized that we had to change the, the area because our technology would take too long and it would be too costly and there is almost no money in this market. So we had to think really about, you know, what products Uh, can we make how and think about all the constraints on the product given our technology is completely new and this is quite hard i think when you're the pioneer in a field and nobody did what you're doing there are so many questions that you know you cannot look for help you cannot look for what has been done and, and this is really hard so i wouldn't say that we pivoted but we had to adjust a lot of our ambitions for this specific field but it, this is fantastic because this is i think whether you pivot or not at least Asking yourself decisions that would kill the project as soon as possible and make you think, explore what you could do differently or what other market you could address brings you so much more, you know, it brings you so much information and key metrics for where you're going that I would encourage to go as soon as possible uh, into this mode of really being ultra self-critical about your product and think about everything that can kill the development of your product in a certain area. And... Actually, doing this work, we did not pivot, but we have came up with actually some potentially new products that we would have never thought about before if we had not faced really tough situation where we're like, oh my God, should we really pivot? Is it never going to work? So now we've not pivoted. We're still going where we wanted to go with some small adjustments, but maybe we have some, some interesting other path that we can use with the platform. So this brings other questions, you know, so that's, you know, you need to really focus how, you know, how do you prioritize? And so this is an extremely challenging, but exciting time right now. Yeah, it sounds like you discovered new opportunities with your technology. One more question actually around that and around the current situation with the COVID-19. In general, for life sciences, it's seen that COVID-19 basically brought a spotlight and is understood as kind of a tailwind for the sector. And we saw that even in our portfolio uh, between the biotech and the hardware, we saw some companies benefit from the situation by finding new applications for technologies that they already owned or that they were able to develop based on what they had. Did that affect you in any way, aside from disrupting operations generally, like probably most people? Did you find opportunities there? No, not really. The microbiome is not too affected by COVID-19? You have a lot of studies now about this and trying to see if there is a link. There are potentially links between the microbiome and, and uh, sensitivity to COVID. Or, but it's so extremely early. And I think we did not really want to be distracted by this because we don't really know how, you know, yes, it's a big thing. But when you look, you know, all the other diseases are still ongoing and you have amazing companies that are already so far ahead that I think though you can have some quick wins by getting grant funding or 
you know, a special partnership on COVID, I would say it's important to really ask yourself the question, you need to do one more project that's going to divert you from something you really believed in. And we did not really want to jump on this thing. Maybe it's a mistake, but we prefer to really focus on what we were building before that. Do you feel, however, that uh, overall in life sciences, making everybody more aware that biology is still there and it still matters is helpful? Do you feel that there's more investors, uh, more media, more corporates that are uh, interested in life sciences than before? I think we'll have to see in a couple months because now most of the media is only on COVID. When you have to push news about something else, it's really hard right now. They focus only on COVID. I hope it will also percolate in other diseases and other fields. We'll have to see, you know, if you don't have a second wave or next season, we'll have to see. I really hope so. I mean, at the end of the day, what's the most important is that I hope there's going to be enough money to fund this project that takes a very long time. I think the case of COVID is exceptional because now, you know, the FDA, uh, the EMA are ready to shorten the development uh, time that are required to put a product on the market. But, you know, if it's not COVID, you're still facing really strong regulation. Approximately, I think now the median in terms of how much it's cost from, you know, a, a cure a hit to a to product in the market is 1.2 to $4 billion and between 8 and 12 years. This is not going to be done for every drugs. It's going to be done for COVID. So it's good that there's a lot of money and that they are flexible about this. But all the other diseases, investors will still need to fund this disease and the opportunities are not the same as for COVID. So I hope it's not just a short spotlight and that people will keep investing in healthcare uh, and in life science, because at the end of the day, this is how we're going to save a lot of people. Absolutely. And in your case, also, you combine two interesting sectors. One is the technology aspect with CRISPR technology that has also a lot of attention and also the microbiome on which there's more and more interest, even if the common people are not yet too aware of uh, its impact on their health. So maybe that combination is also a good thing to have. I would always be uh, careful about hype. There's a lot of hype on CRISPR, a lot of hype on microbiome. Oh, let's combine both and it's going to be a hype square. I think, you know, this is why uh, we're happy to have these investors, you know, Kosla and Seventure, because we are an early stage company with a very early technology. We're advancing fast, but these fields, so CRISPR now, the, the CRISPR field, the technology is well characterized and, you know, we can manipulate CRISPR very well. So this is solid. The microbiome, it's still extremely early in this field. And so there's a lot of hype because they, indeed there's a lot of potentials. Uh, there are a few clinical trials that are important clinical trials that are going to be uh, where, you know, the, the data uh, to see if whether or not they work, the drugs, the microbiome drugs work are going to be revealed this year. It's going to be a very important turn for the industry. We're still early in the field. And so we have to be extremely careful. And so it's a, it's a double-edged sword because Yes, there's a lot of potential, but it's also extremely risky. I would say, you know, as a founder, as, as a CEO, it's, it's really interesting because you have to make strategic choice whether you take a lot of risk or on huge markets or you try to maybe focus on smaller markets, but where the risk is less because the mechanism of action, for instance, is more understood. And so you have different profiles and different type of investors that invest in these different profiles and these different type of risks. And, and this is extremely exciting. But yes, I mean, I think... What is the most exciting for us and people in the company is that, you know, we have the chance to be at the forefront of science doing super cool things that could have a huge potential. And I think this is what motivates us. And we're doing everything as much as possible so that we will not die trying, 
and therefore achieve proof of concept as soon as possible and not have these huge plans on the future, but build step by step and create value as soon as possible by demonstrating that it works. And this is not easy. <laughs> Wish you the best of success. Maybe to wrap up, since you talked about uh, role models and the need for inspiration for scientists and young people, would you be able to share who are maybe some of your role models, dead or alive, and resources that could help people be more inspired to get into science entrepreneurship? Well, that is Louis Pasteur, the first science entrepreneurs from his discoveries in the lab a vaccine, he raised money at the time to build factories to produce vaccines in mass in France. And, and then, so uh, reading biographies, uh, the biography of Louis Pasteur is fantastic because right now where we separate science and business and people say often, you know, ah, yes, you have foundational science, business, they're separate. If you go to business, you know, it's because you're a bad scientist, so you just want to earn a lot of money. I think reading what was the source, what was the first science entrepreneur, Louis Pasteur, is, really shows you that he did this to really help the world and save as many people as possible. This is fantastic. Then I think in, in the biotech world, the story of Genentech is the book I would advise for any deep tech entrepreneurs because it tells you it, it was you know, one of the first real biotech working with DNA. And the story is fantastic because what the founder lived you know, 40 years ago now, almost, we do exactly the same thing right now. And so it's a bit timeless. Uh, and then I think for me, the role models are, you know, people that or entrepreneurs that people don't often know or that are not super known. I found it more useful to discuss with people who are like two or three years ahead of me, rather than, you know, these superstars that are so far ahead that, yes, it's, it's super cool to to discuss with them and you can learn of stuff, but it's, it doesn't really help you right away in your, in the real problems that you face every day. And so my role models keep changing as, you know, the company grows and, and as I grow as a founder, it's founders that are two or three years ahead. And I think this is really important to cultivate your networks locally or even internationally, but be able to have these people to whom you can ask questions, not about, you know, general entrepreneurship things, but really hard stuff you're facing. And so to nurture this network and try to get to know not only people who are exactly at the same stage, but two or three years ahead of you is so important. And these are probably people I call very often and I, and I, and I bother them quite maybe too often. <laughs> well, fantastic. Well, first, it really made me rethink uh, Louis Pasteur as the kind of Thomas Edison of biology is probably maybe a good descriptor. Yeah. And what you're saying about being inspired and also being supported and advised by people who are just a few steps ahead. Totally agree with that because that's also the philosophy behind the programs we run at SOSV and creating those communities where the, the previous graduates of the programs can support uh, the new graduates. And actually, even new graduates contribute some ideas to the, the older folks. So totally buying. Well, Xavier, that was fantastic. I love your energy and I love how you, at the same time, have this very strong vision, but you're also very, very grounded in uh, making practical progress, not overselling and uh, understanding the ecosystem you, you operate in. So I hope a lot of people uh, will get those ideas from your interview and uh, maybe reach out to you to know more. Sure. Happy to help. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Ben. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Don't hesitate to connect or comment on Twitter or LinkedIn and share broadly. To know more about Xavier, Eligo, Deep Tech Founders or Hello Tomorrow, check out their website and Twitter. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV, or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet. Mm-hmm.
Thank you.